Some 20 or more years ago, tens of thousands of people just like you and me failed to stay with the truth. They failed the test. Yes, many thought they were standing with God, but they failed the test of obedience and faith and faithfulness. I'm talking about the apostasy that occurred in the worldwide church of God. Many of us lived through that. We have many others all around the world that are brand new since that time. And I suppose for them it's a little bit difficult to really understand how such a thing could occur. I always wondered how it could occur when I read about and heard sermons on Israel apostatizing, going back into the world, going back into idolatry, and had a hard time understanding it until viewing it firsthand as we have. It's still hard to understand, but backsliding has always been the pattern of mankind from early on. I'll use that term as more of a common so-called Christian term, backsliding, means going back into the world, turning one's back on God and going back into the world. And that has been the pattern of mankind from early on. We read of that over and over and over again. Scripture tells us we must be faithful to the end. For example, in Matthew 24, and most of the scriptures I'm going to give you today are very familiar for all of us, but in Matthew 24... It says in verse 13, and he's talking about signs of the end of the age as well as the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., a type of the end of the age. And it's very clear from uh, verse 3 that he said, Tell us when will you things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. Is talking about our day today. And it says in verse 13, But he who endures to the end shall be saved. It isn't a matter of accepting Jesus, as is portrayed by so many religious uh, preachers, saying just accept Jesus and it's all done for you. There's nothing you can do. Of course, they, they really don't think that there's nothing you can do. They do expect you to live a different way of life, although um, they, they go back and forth, so it's not really solid on that. But notice Revelation 17 and verse 14. Revelation 17 and verse 14. It says, These will make war with the Lamb. This is the very end of the age. And the Lamb will overcome them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with Him, those who are going to be with Christ at His coming, are called, chosen, and notice, and faithful. And faithful. And as we just read in Matthew 24, We must be faithful all the way to the end, to the end of our lives, to the end of the time when Christ returns, whichever comes sooner. And there's a reason that these scriptures are found in the Bible. Because God knows that we need to read them, we need to think about them, we need to meditate on them, we need to internalize them, we need to understand the depth of their meaning that we must Remain faithful all the way to the end. So why do so many fail the test of being faithful and enduring to the end? Why so many fall away? 
I don't think we can come up with one exact answer for every individual because for each individual there is a particular reason. And it's not always the same. Some for a job, some for wanting to go back into the world, some for just being lukewarm and getting caught up in it all, some perhaps not even being converted. But there's one scripture that answers this question, and that's Hebrews, the 11th chapter and verse 6. At least it gives us a good start on answering the problem that we see with mankind. And so we're going to take a close look at this verse in today's sermon. And for those of you who would like titles, and for those who are going to ask me afterward, uh, what is the title? It's Hebrews 11, verse 6. Without faith, dot, 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 dot. Not three dots, but four. We don't have a trinity here. That's a little slight reflection back on a particular book, what was God is, dot, dot, dot. And some read into that perhaps more than it should have been, but uh, maybe not. I don't know what the authors had in mind when they, they wrote that. Hebrews 11, verse 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now, as with John 3.16, there's a lot in this verse. More than I'll have time to really cover today. Maybe it would be a good article or a good telecast, I'm not sure. But nevertheless... There's a lot in this verse. Without faith, it's impossible to please him, to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You can only have faith in God if you know that he exists, if you prove that for yourself. And while each of us may prove that in some different way, there are certain proofs that are more important to one person than another, we should not assume that, that proof is, is merely wishful thinking. Now, there are so many proofs in this world that God does exist. But how do you know? How can you go about it? A good starting place is with church literature. I was, in, in preparation for this sermon, I was just noticing how much absolutely wonderful church literature that we do have. Literature that if people really studied it and internalized it, they would have a strong foundation of understanding. For example, the real God, Proofs and Promises, talks about the proof of God. Proofs and Promises, the real God. Now, that's not the end of the whole story, but that's a good starting place. And frankly, if you only had that booklet, if that's all that you had, that would be a tremendous foundation upon which to hang your hat. Over the years, I've had times where things got confusing in the church, and I'd always go back to, does God exist? Is the Bible His word? And what does the Bible say? And always come back with the same answer. This is where I ought to be. Now, this goes back into worldwide days. At the time, it was, uh, you know, when it was on track, that was the place to be. When it was not, that was not the place to be. We have a new booklet, Evolution and Creation, What Both Sides Missed. 
And I know that Mr. Smith struggled with it. Uh, he and I both, to some degree, as we were reviewing, I was reviewing it, he was writing it. Put, he put a lot of work into that booklet. And the challenge was, how do we write something that will answer questions for those young people, perhaps, who are going to uh, university, even high school for that matter, how do we give them enough knowledge to be able to contradict this and those who are maybe a little bit more educated in terms of uh, biology and so forth without turning off those who are more casual readers? And when I say casual, I don't mean just reading casually, but maybe are not needing as much uh, evidence, uh, those who can look at the world around them and come to the right conclusion. You know, David didn't know a lot of biology in terms of microbiology. He didn't know that, but he could look and see God's creation, as could the Apostle Paul. But evolution and creation, what both sides miss, is an important booklet. And you may not understand every last word of it, but there is so much there that is so valuable and so many good solid quotes, even from evolutionists, that admit that they've got a problem. And, you know, when it comes down to it, either God created us or he didn't. And if he didn't create us, then what explanation do we have? And science offers evolution as an intellectual means of believing, of being a, uh, an intellectual atheist, you might say. Uh, we would dispute that a little bit, but nevertheless, it gives people an excuse for it. But there's no other explanation other than the fact that it just happened by chance, and they don't like the word chance, but it is chance. Either it happened without any guiding force, or there is a guiding force. It's just that simple. And evolution and creation, what both sides miss, is very important, and both sides missing is also very important because there are people who look at um, the young earth creationists out there who are wrong about just about everything else when it comes to the truth. And I don't know why people think that, well, they're right about this one. In other words, they have the wrong day in some cases, although Seventh-day Adventists are very uh, strong on, on some of these things being young earth creationists. But they believe the Trinity. They don't believe the Holy Days. And there are so many other things, and, they're, and some of them are vegetarians based on religious ideas, which that's a problem scripturally, because it does tell us that, uh, well, let's just notice over there in uh, Timothy, the book of, I always have to remember, is it First Timothy or Second Timothy? Um, it's in Second First Timothy 4, verse 1, that the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Doctrines of demons, notice, speaking lies and hypocrisy. And then verse 3 gives two of the ways that uh, they are doctrines of demons. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received. Now, I'm not going to go into the full explanation of that scripture. We've had it before. He's not talking about clean and unclean meats. He's talking about God, the things that God created to be received. 
things that are sanctified, set apart by the Word of God, which is the Bible, and prayer. And we can't skip the Word of God part, which shows what's to be eaten and what is not. But it's becoming very common, and more and more, veganism is becoming a common thing in our society. And it's one thing if someone chooses for whatever reason not to eat those things, but eat things that God created for that purpose. But when it becomes a religion and when people begin to spread it, that is a problem. And they need to look at what Paul told Timothy in that case. But when we look at what God has created, we can know that there is a creator. In Psalm 139, Psalm 139, very, very powerful statement by David. In verse 13, he says, For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. When you stop to think about reproduction, I'm not going to go into all the details. I don't think we need to. But you can think about all the things that are involved in reproduction. At some point in time, we can say, well, it happened gradually. But at some point in time, there had to be male. And at the very same time, there had to be female. And there had to be a means of bringing the sperm and the egg together or whatever we want to call it, because even in, in uh, uh, vegetation, you, you do have the male and the female there. And so at some point in time, you had to have both, and they had to come into to place together, or it would be meaningless. You would, it wouldn't mean anything. And w- when you stop to think about just the biology of it all, and the means of coming together in the way that creatures do. That's a miracle in itself. And then you stop to think about two cells coming together, and they have all the DNA, all the material, all everything that's necessary to be able to form that creature within the mother. And in human biology, and I guess mammalian, you know, that, that those first two cells then must implant in the wall of that womb and begin to grow. And if they don't implant, they don't grow. So how did that happen? Just, just by chance it happened? How many generations would it take before it figured out, boy, I've got to, I've got to have food source here? And you start to think about it. There are so many things that take place. Why is a kidney uh, shaped the way it is? I always wonder about that. I understand how one cell could then divide into another and into another and another and so forth, but why does it take that shape and how does it know when enough is enough? And how does it know that I need blood vessels going through here and there and every place else to feed the whole thing? You stop to think about it a little bit. It just doesn't make sense that it could all happen by itself. And yet, as evolutionists have it, 
they have just so stories. Well, this happened, then this happened, then this happened, and this happened. Well, they can explain how it happened, but not really what caused it to happen. They can give the story, but they can't explain all the details. Oh, it sounds good. They can give good-sounding stories. I've read a few of them. They sound good on the surface till you stop and you think about them a little bit. Consider the perfection found in God's creation. My wife and I really just dearly love to watch the the um, hummingbirds outside. I know that some of you have had hummingbird feeders forever. We never did until we moved here, and it's only been the last year or so. And you know, last summer, I guess it was, we had the hummingbird feeder, and you know, they're, they're they're amazing little creatures. They have to eat their weight every single day to survive. And they'll eat bugs, but they'll also, they like nectar, especially, and they, they like sugar water. Um, and, and I guess they thrive on it all right. They seem to. And they have all kinds of interesting behaviors. And I, I was noticing one this morning, and it would fly away, and it'd go up into the particular branch on a tree and just sit there and wait for another one to try to come by and it'd swoop down and scare it away and then another one has I don't know if it's the same one I don't think it is it thinks it's a different one it's, it's kind of hard to tell because they do kind of look alike you know uh, there are differences but a lot of them you know they all look alike and so it'd go over to the rose bush and there's a little branch there that it sits on and they have all kinds of interesting behaviors. But you think about the perfection of a hummingbird, that those wings can travel so fast, and they call them hummingbirds because they have a hum to them because their wings are traveling so fast, but they can go backward and forward, backward and forward. You don't find that with other birds. Other birds go one direction, basically. They can dive and they can do all kinds of things, but they don't go backward, whereas a hummingbird does. And they're so fast and so cute and so interesting. You know, besides church literature, there's, there are outside sources. Michael Denton, I think, has the, the primer on, on why evolution can't happen. His book is Evolution, A Theory in Crisis. I've, I think I've recommended it before. He has a new one. Evolution still a theory in crisis. And I don't recommend that one. It just, it's, it's much more, um, oh, it's much more difficult to understand what he's trying to say. I'll put it that way. Whereas evolution of theory and crisis is very understandable, at least most of it. But there are parts that are technical. And there's nothing wrong with reading something that's a little bit over your head from time to time. It expands your thinking and you begin to understand. I, I've got one here that I'm reading right now called Foresight by Marcos Eberlin, an Argentinian uh, scientist. And uh, I'll read it here in just a minute, some of it. But Michael Behe's Darwin's Black Box, another very powerful statement showing that there has to be intelligence behind life. And then you can go on the Internet and look up Drew Berry, Drew, B-E-R-R-Y, DNA replication. You can see that on YouTube, and it's amazing and incredible what goes on in your body and every cell in your body, what's taking place at all times, and how mechanical it is, as he says, it's just that mechanical, his words. And you have all these molecular machines going about, 
And you'll never view yourself the same after you watch something like that. I'd like to take a little bit of time to read from this book called Foresight. The, the thesis of the book is that life required foresight. That in other words, for certain things to happen, someone had to know what the next step was. Someone, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Now that's a, you know, made fun of in many circles, but it's true. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? And that's a real, if you look into that, and he even goes into it, there's nothing simple about the egg. You know, it's got to breathe. It's got to allow oxygen in for the little chicken to grow. So it has that little pocket in there, and then it has just the right food source, the yolk and the, the, the white, and it, it's the right food source for that little chicken. And then before it can get out, it has to develop something that's probably not exactly the right term, but, you know, a, a beak tooth, a tooth, a hardened place on the tooth that it can crack that shell. And in certain ones, it cracks it around in the circle. It, it doesn't just peck any place. It has a certain pattern that it, that, it, that it pecks away. And when you look at all the things that has to have just the right amount of oxygen in there at that particular time so that it won't suffocate. But it can't let everything in. I want to read here a little bit, and, I, and I, I'll try to make it clear try to emphasize it because it took me a couple readings to really understand what he was saying here in some of it. But the simple cell, which there is no such thing as a simple cell. Uh, I, I knew a long, long time ago that if you have all the parts of the cell, mitochondria, the DNA, the you know, all the different parts of the cell, and, and it's, it's so complex, far more complex than any machine ever made by man. And that's scientists that say that. You know, the simplest cell, there is no such thing as a simple cell. But when, when you look at it, if you don't have a container for it all, you have nothing. So let's take this primordial soup that scientists, evolutionists talk about, that there's this primordial soup and it produces... Uh, amino acids, and those amino acids come together and they produce a protein. And there, there are huge problems with that because amino acids, which they've been able to produce in test tubes under exacting circumstances, uh, ha have a problem. Some of them are right-handed, some of them are left-handed. But for life, they all have to be left-handed. And if you have a mixture and they combine, then the protein would not fold properly, would not take the right shape for the job that it has to do within the cell. So somehow, at the very beginning, all the amino acids had to be left-handed. I suppose they could have been right-handed if they're, they've got to be one or the other, but they can't be a mixture. So how did that happen? Well, scientists really have no viable explanation for it. They can come up with a just-so story, I'm sure. But how do they, they solve that problem? Now, you can take all the parts of the cell and you put it together and it has to have something to hold together. I used to say a glad bag or a Ziploc bag. You have to have something to hold it together. And they tell this just so story that, well, there's this bubble and it just happens to be caught in the bubble. But, you know, I didn't know just how complicated that bubble is, that, that cellular wall. 
First of all, it's a double wall. It's not a single wall. It's a double wall. And it's kind of like this. You know, here's, here's one wall, here's the other, and they connect together kind of like this. And so it's a very complicated structure. It isn't, it isn't just a simple membrane. It's not a glad bag. It's not a piece of cellophane. It's not a bubble. It is something that's made of, of proteins that's put it together in a very complex way. But let me read just a little bit here because one thing that we know is that for a cell to live, it has to have food and it has to be able to expel waste. So the lipid bilayer, the double-lined uh, membrane, uh, protect and accommodate life. But as previously noted, the cell also needs channels to ferry essential materials in and out. It has to have pores or channels or a means of getting things out and as well as getting things in. If we had contracted out the job to a top nanotech company employing all its powers and engineering foresight, we couldn't have been more pleased with the result. These lipid bilayer membranes come with 3D protein assemblies that work beautifully as selective channels. These channels are smart enough to let in what needs to be let in and to keep out what needs to be kept out. Now, I could stop right there because that's pretty simple, that you've got this membrane, this, this, this egg-like structure, you might say, it's got all the things that make the cell live, but it has to have pores that let things in and let things out. But somehow it knows what to let in and what to let out. It doesn't let just anything in because that would be a problem. For an evolutionary model of membrane origins to work, it must account for the coevolution, in other words, the, the, the evolving not just in one thing, but another thing, two things together, the coevolution of membrane-associated proteins, membrane bioenergetics, and lipid bilayers, a triple concentrated miracle. So you'd have to have three things that would come together all at once. You may not understand lipid and all this sort of thing, but you have to have three things happening all at once. And if one of them's missing, you have no life. And it would not have started. Attempts to wrestle with this question often begin with a confession of bafflement, as when A.Y. Mokadjanian and his uh, colleagues wrote that, quote, the origins of the membranes and membrane proteins remains enigmatic. In other words, it's a mystery. We can't figure it out. We can't explain it. We don't know how it happened. One thing membrane channels must permit is the passage of water. For this essential task, biomembranes contain special channels called aquaporins. Cells are cybernetic, multimolecular uh, cities full of high-tech machines. It just means that within the cell, there are all kinds of nanotechnology, nanomachines, protein machines. They're all very delicate. They have power plants and you know, even nanorobots. That's within the cell. All this within the cell. But for all that nanotech to properly work, it needs the same thing you and I need in large quantities, water. Indeed, this simple but essential wondrous molecule, H2O, with so many cellular functions, must be able to enter and exit the cell interior if the cell is to survive and thrive. Now, let me just explain it in layman's language as best I can. 
It sounds like a simple thing. Just let water in and let water out, carry things that needs, uh, uh, you know, potassium and, and uh, various other things to bring them in and let them out, and the water just flows in and out. But there's a problem, and that is that water, H2O, is held together by a positive charge. And if the water goes into the cell, it's going to carry that very, very small electrical charge, you might say, and that electrical charge is going to monkey up the works. It's kind of like if you took a bolt of lightning and you introduced it into, well, we have exactly what happens today, don't we? If lightning is too close, uh, in fact, we've got the problem right now at the office. It's monkeying up the, uh, the fire alarm system uh, because this, you know, this charge can affect very delicate electronics. Well, that's exactly what water would do inside the cell as it is. And so it has, uh, I'll just call it a gatekeeper. There's a more technical term, but there's a gatekeeper that allows the water to come in, but it breaks that electrical charge, gets rid of that static that holds it together. And so it allows water in only under those circumstances. How in the world did that take place? You know, the more you study into life itself, the more amazing it is and the more remarkable our Creator is. He understood when He made water, He knew about the positive charge, but He also knew that in order to have life, you have to break that electrical charge. And, and what this man is saying is that foresight. Someone had to understand the problems. And it just, to, to say that it all happened by chance is crazy. It's nuts. It's far too complicated. And just so stories will not cut it because there are so many chicken and egg examples in life. One after another, after another, after another. Thousands, probably billions of things that had foresight in order to make it work. God challenges us to prove him. In Isaiah 40, Isaiah 40, after going through all the terrible things that Israel is going to go through, description of the penalties, as well as the, uh, you know, the kingdom of God uh, appearing on earth and, and you know, uh, Christ coming back and his law going forth. We have all of that. And here in Isaiah 40 and verse 15, he says, Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as a small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the aisles as a very little thing. It's a very little thing for God to lift up the aisles. Now, I would think that if we really understood how this earth operates, and there are people that have a lot more understanding than we do, but... For, for everything, you know, uh, tectonics and, and everything the way that the, the earth operates and what it's made of, the heavy metals, uh, iron-based and so forth, uh, this, is, this is no easy thing. This is something that is far more complicated than, than just a, a ball out here in the middle of nothing. Uh, it says, Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor is be sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are nothing. And they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? 
Verse 21, have you not known, have you not heard, has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth, from the very beginning, the foundations of the earth, and we might say the foundations of life as well? Have we not known? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Next time you go up in a plane, just look down. Get a window seat. I, we try to get aisle seats so we can get up. But I remember when we first started flying, or I started flying first, I wanted the window seat. I wanted to look down. And, boy, you, you just see every once in a while along a highway, you know, 40,000 feet or 36,000, whatever it might be, you, you, you see a little shine of the glass windshield that the sun reflects off of it. But everything is so small there. And God can look down upon this earth and... It says, like grasshoppers, really less than grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. That's a whole other branch of science that you can study into and find that it isn't so simple. That's why they talk about multiverses. Mr. Smith has written on that. They, They recognize that this universe that we understand was designed to allow life to exist as we know it. And, and yet all of the all of the things you need, uh, Mr. Wakefield sometimes talks about a book that six little numbers. There, there's six things that have to be just exactly right, but now they know that there are many things that have to be exactly right in order to have life as we understand it at all, carbon-based life. And, and they realize that the... The, the difference between, or the, uh, the spread between that which would allow it and that which would not is so narrow that it's hard to believe that one universe would be enough. The odds against it are so great that we must have multiverses, multi-universes, beyond everything that in darkness, then there's got to be another one out there. And, another, and, and yet there's absolutely zero proof of such a thing. But that's the extent that scientists go. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judge of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be shown, uh, sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth when he will also blow on them and they will wither and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. Verse 25. To whom then will you liken me? To whom can we liken God? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Well, scientists talk about evolution, and you bring up some, some difficult thing to, do, uh, to, to explain, and they'll say, well, that's the power of evolution. You don't understand the power of evolution. Wow. We're going to give evolution power? To perform miracle after miracle after miracle? Are we going to liken God to evolution? To whom then will you liken me, or to whom will I, shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things. Speaking of the universe and the stars and so forth, who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name, by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one is missing. You know, God is the creator. And he challenges us on that. 
Who are we going to liken as one who could bring it about? What scientists now admit is that there was a beginning. There was a beginning. There was a time when this universe did not exist. So how did it come into being? How did it happen? The Big Bang? The cosmic expansion, as they would refer to it? Okay, fine. <laughs> but that singularity, that, that something so small you can't even see it, everything that exists in the universe, they tell us, was so small until it exploded out. And then everything we see came from that spot that was basically nothing. Well, that's a nice story, but how did that happen? How can we prove such a thing? And First Thessalonians 5 and verse 21. In fact, I'll just turn to the bulletin here. And really, I, I didn't uh, read the bulletin or Mr. Dr. Winnell's comments and bring out the sermon. It, it was kind of the kind of came together here. Uh, but it says, Prove your beliefs. Many today assume that simply believing in Jesus and accepting Him into your heart are all that is required to be a Christian. However, the Bible teaches differently. The Scriptures warn us that false teachers will also talk about believing in Jesus and will deceive many people. And he gives the Scriptures. The Apostle Paul advised Christians to test, examine carefully all things and hold fast what is good. First Thessalonians 5 and verse 21. And that's my next Scripture. First Thessalonians 5 and verse 21. Actually, he, he wrote it there. But just notice it. These are things that we need to know. These are verses that we uh, can memorize or at least kind of know where they are so we can find them. It says, test all things, or the old King James, prove all things. Hold fast what is good. Hold fast unto what is good. You know, we have so many resources. The Bible, fact or fiction. Another one of our booklets, the Bible, Fact or Fiction, it gives some very basic, very important, and very solid proofs of the Bible. You could go further if you wanted to really study into more of a secular, I say secular, more of an outside source. Josh McDowell has a book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, Evidence for Christ. It goes into a lot of other things. I've never been able to get through that, but anyway... A lot of good information there. Notice Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46. And let's notice verse 8. It says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. Prophecy, a proof of God's existence, a proof that the Bible is the Word of God. Now when he says there in the book of Daniel, the 12th chapter, verse 4, that at the time of the end many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. Do we see that? Of course we do. When he talks there in Zechariah, the 12th and the 14th chapters, of all nations gathering together against Judah the Jews, and Israel. Do we see the Jews in Jerusalem? Not just in Israel, but Judah and Jerusalem. Yes, we do. 
when it talks in Revelation, the uh, 11th chapter, about how the two witnesses are going to be killed and people all over the earth are going to see them for three and a half days, does that not indicate a kind of technology that could never have been understood 2,000 years ago? There's so much in the Bible that proves that the Bible is the Word of God. In Malachi, the third chapter, it tells us one way that we can prove God. And sometimes members need to take note of this. In Malachi 3, in verse 8, it says, Will a man rob God, yet you have robbed me? But you say, Well, in what way have we robbed you? What way am I a thief? And he answers in tithes and offerings. You're cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. The whole nation, this is something that Mr. Ames quotes in the uh, co-worker letter that he wrote that he just sent out. He says, Bring all the tithes in the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven. So he says, Try me. The old King James says, Prove me. You, uh, how's it put it, uh, prove me now herewith. Here's a challenge in Scripture. He says, prove me now. Tithe and prove me. Now, I don't think any of us are going to say that if you start tithing that everything is just going to be hunky-dory all of a sudden, all at once. Although, frankly, we've had some incredible stories over the years of how God has blessed people when they've been gone tithing. But he says, prove me, prove me, test me, see if I'm not able to take care of you. Part of knowing that God exists is knowing who he is, knowing who God is, because if we don't know the true God, that's not going to help much. We've got to know the true God. There are warnings about a different Jesus. Again, this is brought out, I believe, in uh, Dr. Winnale's um, Yes, exactly. I, I had these exact same scriptures, Matthew 24, verse 3 to 5. And I didn't look, well, I, I read this but I, uh, earlier to okay it, but I hadn't really, wasn't even thinking about that when I was putting the sermon together. Matthew 24, verses 3 to 5, let's just notice that. We're given a warning by Jesus of the end of the age. And he says here, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples said, Tell us when will these things be, and sign of your coming in the end of the age. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Now, this is what we have in our world today. Many are deceived. They have not taken this warning. They say that Jesus is the Christ. They admit that he is the Christ. But in the process, they deceive many. And these are the leaders that are, are doing so. In 2 Corinthians, the 11th chapter, 2 Corinthians 11, and verse 3, I fear lest somehow as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, he says, you may well put up with it. 
So we have to know the true God if we're going to hang in there and be we need to know the mind of God. And the scriptures teach us the mind of God. They teach us about the Sabbath and holy days. Look at the, the wealth of information that we have. Which day is a Christian Sabbath? Easter, the untold story. Is Christmas Christian? And the holy day is God's master plan. And when we want to compare further, mainstream Christianity with the doctrine that God has opened your mind to, think about these booklets, John 3.16, Hidden Truths of the Golden Verse, showing how virtually every part of that verse is misunderstood by the world, even though they quote it all the time. They don't know the true God. They don't know what the love of God is, you know, the keeping of God's commandments. Uh, they don't know what it means to perish. They don't really know what eternal life is all about. There's so much that is wrong. Restoring original Christianity and Satan's counterfeit Christianity. These booklets that I believe both of them written by Dr. Meredith, just masterpieces of showing the history of Christianity and what's wrong with it. We have living education class online going through the book of Acts and it talks about clean and unclean meats there, one scripture that is often misunderstood, as well as right government, Acts the 15th chapter. Dr. Meredith gives that, uh, those classes, and uh, both chapter 10 of Acts and chapter 15 just does a masterful job. Things that you and I need to fully understand because we need to understand the mind of our Creator. You might ask the question, how could people who really understood these truths turn back into error? How could they go back into error? Well, let's take Hebrews 11, verse 6, a little further. It says, without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and knows this part of it, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. It shows that not only must we believe that he exists, but we must understand that he rewards those who diligently seek him. Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. And we'll look at verse 24 through 27. It says, By faith Moses, when he came, became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, the pleasures of sin for a season, as the old King James has it. He made a choice. He made a choice. And he, he chose to suffer affliction with the people of God than what the world has to offer. You know, our young people have that choice. Well, we all have that choice, don't we? But our young people have the opportunity of, of a reward that is so great. And especially our young people. One of the things that I hear so often, not so much lately, but, but I used to hear it a lot from people, and I'm sure that it still goes around, is somebody, an older person, say, why did God wait so long to call me? Because... 
when you're 70 or 80 years of age and God calls you and God does call people in their 80s, they think, my whole life was all going the wrong direction. And now God opens my mind, but what can I do? Well, God knows. There's a reason why he calls people of all ages. We may not always understand the reasons, but there are things that we can do. And it does show that, yes, uh, you can teach, I'm sorry, an old dog new tricks. Uh, Don't mean that you're an old dog. But sometimes people say they can't change. And there are people who are in their 70s and 80s who have been called who do change, don't they? And they prove that that saying is not correct. And they are faithful during a very difficult time of life in some cases. But when I think of young people and I think of the the opportunities that are available, you have no idea where God can take you. You have no idea. God called me when I was 16. If I were to go back to the time when I was 16 and tell you how my life would go, you know, that I'd be married to who I'm married to and that uh, have the opportunity to work at the summer camps and the job that I have now and all the... I, I would... There was no way that I could have foreseen what God had in mind for me. And young people, take note. Moses, yes, he was 40 years of age, but he still had a lot of life left in him, another 80 years altogether. But... <clears throat> Notice he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the, the, the uh, passing pleasures of sin or the temporary pleasures of sin. Yes, sin does have temporary pleasure. We won't lie to you about that. But there's always a cost to it. Esteeming the reproach of Christ. Notice that he esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. He saw that there is a reward. And so when we look at the scripture, he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He made that choice to diligently seek God or to, to choose God's way. I don't know how diligent he was at the beginning, but he, he at, at some point he saw that he had a choice. He could stay with the world or he could choose a better way with a much greater reward. And he chose that way. Notice verse 13. Hebrews 11:13 These all died in faith. It's talking about Abraham and Sarah and Noah. It says these all died in faith, not having received the promises. No, in this life they didn't receive them, but having seen them afar off, they were assured of them. They embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They recognized this is temporary. And I know when you're 16, you might think that, well, I'm going to live forever. Guess what? You eventually get old. And at some point, you want to know, is this all there is? And a lot of times, you don't have to get that old. You begin to figure out that, hey, there's pain with choosing this other way of life. They confess that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. 
but now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, and he has prepared a city for them. He has something prepared for you and for me that is far greater than anything in this world. Far greater. I was showing somebody pictures of the, some of the fish we caught on my last trip. I, I wasn't fishing for three weeks, but several days. I love fishing, uh, especially when they're biting, which they always do up where we go. But they were bigger this year and more plentiful. We, there were four of us, and we got about 40 all together, pound and three quarters, about four pounds, rainbow trout, all fly fishing, light tackle. But you know what? I, I used to think in the kingdom of God, I want to create a fish too big for me to catch. You know, bring in, you know, can I, can I do that? I, I don't think that fishing is going to be all that important at that time. I think that's going to be so much on the back, uh, back, whatever, 40 from what's important at that point in time. When we have the opportunity to work with people and bring people, they'll be our, our children, as it were, bring them into the family of God. And the joy that that will be when we see people who come to repentance and and when we can read their mind and really understand what it's like and to be able to encourage people and, and things that maybe, again, when you're young, you don't think too much about. But, you know, people want to have children and, you know, these are going to be children in a way that uh, we, we can't even understand today. God has something incredibly wonderful for us. In the 12th chapter... Verse 12, it says here, Therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Verse 16, Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it, that is, repentance, diligently with tears. He sought repentance. He didn't, I'm sorry. I, I got that wrong. <clears throat> he was rejected for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. The it is not repentance, but the it is the blessing. And if you go back to the original uh, account there, uh, then you will see that that is the case. He wanted that blessing, and he sought it with tears. It wasn't repentance, but it was the blessing that he was seeking. You know, there will be a time when the reward will be gone. It will be too late for it. Matthew 19, Matthew 19, verse 23. Matthew 19 and verse 23 this is where uh, the young man came to Jesus, the rich young man, and he had great possessions. And when Jesus told him to sell all that he had and give to the poor, he went and was sorrowful. And Jesus said in verse 23, Assuredly, I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. 
And his disciples were astonished by this because they had the attitude that it, it was a, a rich person was more successful and uh, more righteous, and they could look to Abraham and various other ones, Solomon, and, and of course he wasn't all that righteous toward the end of his life, but David, and they could look back, and, and they had a very different view of things regarding wealth. But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men uh, it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And Peter said to him, See, we have left all and followed you, therefore what shall we have? He wanted to know, What is our reward? And Jesus said to them, Assuredly I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now that's for them. Verse 29, this is for you and me. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. You know, I, I've, I've seen that in my life because when I left home, and I didn't leave home perfectly, but my parents had a different view of things. And when I left, my attitude was, okay, well, that they've got their life and I've got mine. Now, that wasn't right on my part. And we uh, were reconciled before, you know, uh, after some years, more reconciled. It wasn't that we were totally unreconciled, but left. And anyway, what I found was that I had parents. I had older people in the church that were like parents to me. I remember driving my motor, motor scooter from Ventura to Santa Barbara over the mountain there and uh, get very cold, but it was, it was a lot of struggle. And I had to push it in some cases. And I remember when I got up there, I was sick, and Elizabeth and Leo uh, Peterson took good care of me, uh, so to speak, nursed me back to health. Not that I was horrendously sick, but I was not doing well at the time. People that were like parents to me. Every Sabbath, Oscar and I would go up there to his parents' home and have these wonderful breakfasts on their glass table as we sat there looking out over the city of Santa Barbara and Channel Islands and everything, lived up in the mountains there, incredible view. You know, I enjoyed that. It's not something I had that I had created or whatever, but I had that opportunity. You know, I think of all the blessings that God has given. And when he says, I'm going to give you all these things a hundredfold, and then the cherry on the top of the ice cream. Yeah, that's a bad analogy, but anyway. Uh, eternal life. Wow. Eternal life. No pain, no suffering either. And Hebrews 11, verse 6, it says, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And 1 Corinthians 10 Verses 1 to 4 shows that they were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and the sea. But God was not pleased with them. And they all died in the wilderness except those that were under 20 years of age and then Joshua and Caleb. But they all, otherwise, they all died in the wilderness. They fell away. 
one way or the other. In Hebrews, the third chapter, it says they could not enter in because of unbelief. Because of unbelief. In Hebrews 11, verse 1, this is a passage that is often misunderstood. But it says here, because this is, this is something that is missing from so many people. It says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence. In other words, faith is the evidence of things not seen. It is the substance of things not seen. The substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, oftentimes people think of this as meaning that we have to have evidence for our faith, but this is saying something that goes beyond that. You see, the children of Israel saw all the plagues in Egypt. They saw the death of the firstborn, and their lives were spared. You know, the firstborn, it wasn't the death of everybody, just certain ones. They saw the, the Red Sea open up, and they walked through on dry land. And when the Egyptians tried to come through, it didn't work for them, did it? If, if you saw a miracle like that, would you believe forever? Not necessarily. Because they were human beings like you and me. They had that evidence. Furthermore, they had manna six days a week, but not the seventh day. They had all of these blessings. They had all of the evidence. You can study books like this all day long. You can, you can prove that God exists in a, in a certain, certain way. But without faith, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith is that evidence that these things are so. Faith holds this whole verse together. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You've got to believe that God is the rewarder. That your efforts, which we don't save ourselves by our efforts, but nevertheless, without those efforts, we're not going to, uh, we can disqualify ourselves, I'll put it that way. Without our effort to follow and seek Him, it's not going to work. Faith, without faith, it's impossible to please Him. In Ephesians 2, verse 8, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's not our faith, it's God's faith in us. Galatians 2.20, Dr. Mary's favorite scripture. The faith of Jesus Christ. In other words, what we're seeing here is there has to be that relationship with our Creator. It's not just mechanical. It isn't just praying for a half hour and studying for a half hour each day for as an end in itself. We have to have that relationship with our Creator. We have to have that faith, the faith of Jesus Christ living in us. And we have to understand that God does exist, that He is real, and that he is a rewarder of all who seek him. You know, the Bible is littered with examples of people who fell away from the truth. It maybe littered is the wrong word, but it's full of examples of people who fell away from the truth. There's a reason why God has inspired those examples in his word. We've witnessed this ourselves. 
again in this age with the apostasy that took place in worldwide. But we see people come into our midst, they're baptized, and then they leave. So we see it on a personal level from time to time. Maybe not in mass, but one here, one there. And there is always a certain element that come and that go. And sometimes it shocks us as to who it might be. But we do not have to fall away if we understand and put into practice Hebrews 11 and verse 6. Yes, with faith it is possible to please him. If you come to God believing that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. 